So here we begin class two on the great divorce. And just uh, by way of uh, review, for those of you who, who missed last week or for some reason didn't uh, understand last week, so the, the whole thing is, is, uh, is a fantasy. And it's important to remember that Lewis is not trying to be exact in his theology. In other words, he, you know, he's describing these events and these scenes, but he's not, he's not saying this is what heaven is like. Um, at the same time, he is saying that some of the dynamics that are found therein could be like what happens, okay? It could be something like that. Um, so the, the fantasy begins, uh, you know, Lewis is in the first person. He's walking through this, uh, this town, this gray town where it's just sort of perpetually gray and rainy and miserable. And he finds himself in line at a bus stop. And there's, there's, uh, that's the only place where there's any people. And they're, they're all very disagreeable, disagreeable people waiting in line for the bus. The bus comes to get on the bus. The bus sort of takes off because it doesn't, it kind of. And um, what ends up happening is the bus goes up to this other land uh, where it's not gloomy and it's not rainy, but it's, it's this bright land with you know, beautiful mountains and, and et cetera. So it's definitely worth going back and, and, and reading and, and listening to sort of how he describes this. And uh, these people get off the bus and uh, he realizes that actually now in this new land, these people that were on the bus from the gray town look like ghosts. And as they're walking around, um, the, the grass hurts their feet. You know, everything in this, in this new world is much more solid and much more heavy and much more. So there's a, uh, there's a sense that these souls don't quite belong here yet, okay, that they're, uh, that they're out of place. And what, then what ends up happening is these people come from the mountains to greet these ghosts. And what we find out is basically um, in one person is sent to each of these souls uh, to try to help them on their way to heaven, okay? And uh, from these people's perspective, the gray town is hell. And so these, these, these ghosts or these souls are given this ability to, uh, to go up into heaven. Now, from a different perspective, if those souls choose to stay, then the gray town would have been purgatory, okay? It would have been their purgation before they could enter into heaven, um, which is kind of an interesting way to, to look at, you know, what is hell, what is heaven. But, but down in the gray town, what we end up finding out is, you know, these people that do live there end up uh, separating themselves more and more and more from each other. And they build houses, they get upset with each other, they get in fights, and so then they... They, they move miles away and, and they become more and more isolated and secluded, uh, which uh, definitely squares with a particular way of looking at hell, that, um, that a person in hell, Lewis says this uh, in, uh, I forget which book, Mere Christianity or Screwtape Letters, he says, in the end, there are only two sorts of people, those who say to God, thy will be done, or those to whom God says, thy will be done. That it can only be one, one will in heaven, and that's God's will. 
You can't have your will in heaven. But if you want to have your will, if you want to have it your way for eternity, well, then God has to put you somewhere, but he can't put you with him because you're not God, he is. We're not God, he is. Okay, so where we're picking up then is chapter 6, and we're, um, we have a few different things. We have, we have I think 6 is, uh, is expounding a little bit more on sort of the experience of this world, and then we're going to have individual experiences between the souls and those who have been sent to try to bring them into heaven, okay? Here we go. The cool, smooth skin of the bright water was delicious to my feet, and I walked on it for about an hour, making perhaps a couple of hundred yards. Then the going became difficult. The current grew swifter. Great flakes or islands of foam came swirling towards me, bruising my shins like stones if I did not get out of their way. The surface became uneven, rounded itself into lovely hollows and elbows of water, which distorted the appearance of the pebbles on the bottom and threw me off balance so that I had to scramble to shore. But as the banks hereabouts consisted of great flat stones, I continued my journey without much hurt to my feet. An immense yet lovely noise vibrated through the forest. Hours later, I rounded a bend and saw the explanation. Before me, green slopes made a wide amphitheater enclosing a frothy and pulsating lake into which, over many colored rocks, a waterfall was pouring. Here, once again, I realized that something had happened to my senses so that they were now receiving impressions which would normally exceed their capacity. On earth, such a waterfall would not have been perceived at all as a whole. It was too big. Its sound would have been a terror in the woods for 20 miles. Here, after the first shock, my sensibility took both as a well-built ship takes a huge wave. I exulted. The noise, though gigantic, was like giant's laughter, like the revelry of a whole college of giants together, laughing, dancing, singing, roaring at their high works. Again, he's trying to explain how a world can be so much more than what we experience here. Okay, He's trying to expand our vision of what a, a paradise would be like. Near the place where the fall plunged into the lake, there grew a tree, wet with the spray, half-veiled in foam bows, flashing with the bright, innumerable birds that flew among its branches. It rose in many shapes of billowy foliage, foliage, huge as a fenland cloud. From every point, apples of gold gleamed through the leaves. Suddenly, my attention was diverted by a curious appearance in the foreground. A hawthorn bush not 20 yards away seemed to be behaving oddly. Then I saw that it was not a bush, the bush, but something standing close to the bush and on the side of it. Finally, I realized that it was one of the ghosts. It was crouching as if to conceal itself from something beyond the bush, and it was looking back at me and making signals. It kept on signing to me to duck down. As I could not see what the danger was, I stood fast. Presently, the ghost, after peering around in every direction, ventured beyond the hawthorn bush. It could not get on very fast because of the torturing grasses beneath its feet, but it was obviously going as fast as it possibly could straight for another tree. There it stopped again, standing straight upright against the trunk as though it were taking cover. Because the shadow of the branches now covered it, 
I could see it better. It was my boulder-hatted companion, the one whom the big ghost had called Ikey. After it had stood panting at the tree for about 10 minutes and carefully reconnoitered the ground ahead, it made a dash for another tree, such a dash as was possible to, to it. In this way, with infinite labor and caution, it had reached the great tree in about an hour. That is, it had come within 10 yards of it. Remember, the, the, the souls can't, the grass is painful. They can't just walk on this grass. It's so much more real than, than the world that they came from or the town that they had come from. They can't, it, everything is painful for them. Here it was checked. Round the tree grew a belt of lilies to the ghost an insuperable obstacle. It might as well have tried to tread down an anti-tank trap as to walk on them. It lay down and tried to crawl between them, but they grew too close and would not bend. And all the time it was apparently haunted by the terror of discovery. At every whisper of the wind it stopped and cowered. Once at the cry of a bird it struggled back to its last place of cover. But then desire hounded it out again and it crawled once more to the tree. I saw it clasp its hands and writhe in the agony of frustration. The wind seemed to be rising. I saw the ghost wring its hand and put its thumb into its mouth, cruelly pinched, I doubt not, between two stems of the lilies when the breeze swayed them. So, you know, every, you can just imagine this guy like trying to, he can't crawl between lilies because they're hard and, and, you know, even the wind, you know, blowing the lilies. The point being that this world is, again, so much more real and these, these ghosts are, are alien to it, so alien to it that, they can't even exist in it without pain, okay? Um, then came a real gust. The branches of the tree began to toss. A moment later, and half a dozen apples had fallen round the ghost and on it. He gave a sharp cry, but suddenly checked it. I thought the weight of the golden fruit where it had fallen on him would have disabled him. And certainly for a few minutes, he was unable to arise. He lay whimpering, nursing his wounds. But soon he was at work again. I could see him feverishly trying to fill his pockets with the apples. Of course, it was useless. One could see how his ambitions were gradually forced down. He gave up the idea of a pocketful. Two would have to do. He gave up the idea of two. He would take one, the largest one. He gave up that hope. He was now looking for the smallest one. He was trying to find if there was one small enough to carry. The amazing thing is that he had succeeded. When I remembered what the leaf had felt like when I tried to lift it, I could hardly help admiring this unhappy creature when I saw him rise, staggering to his feet, actually holding the smallest of the apples in his hands. He was lame from his hurts, and the weight bent him double. Yet even so, inch by inch, still availing himself of every scrap of cover, he set out on his Via Dolorosa to the bus, carrying his torture. Fool put it down, said a great voice suddenly. It was quite unlike any other voice I, I had heard so far. It was a thunderous yet liquid voice. With an, appealing cert, with an appealing certainly, I knew that the waterfall itself was speaking. And I saw now, though it did not cease to look like a waterfall, that it was also a bright angel who stood like one crucified against the rocks and poured himself perpetually down towards the forest with loud joy. Fool, he said, put it down. You cannot take it back. There is no room for it in hell. Stay here. 
and learn to eat, eat such apples. The very leaves and the blades of grass in the wood would delight to teach you. Whether the ghost heard it or not, I don't know. At any rate, after pausing for a few minutes, it braced itself anew for its agonies and continued with even greater caution till I lost sight of it. So the, the again, the, you know, chapter six is, is trying to give us an, an idea of this relationship between these souls who have come up from hell and they've entered into this much larger and greater and, you know, in a sense, heavier. You know, it's a more real place than hell. Um, a distinction, of course, is being made between the pettiness of hell and those who are in it and the smallness of hell and the largesse, you know, the greatness of heaven and, and how much more real heaven is that, you know, you have to have a, in, in the analogy, only those with solid bodies can eat the apples and can walk on the grass and, you know, uh, only the blessed. But the damned are so out of place you know, those from hell are so out of place that they're miserable in heaven, which is the point. Because somebody who does not desire God's will couldn't be in heaven. They would be miserable in heaven. That's part of the, the difficulty we have with why would a good God send people to heaven? A good and loving God would send, pe or send people to hell, rather. Um, why would he do that to, to, you know, people doing the best they can? Well, because... People who desire only their will and what they want out of life are not going to be happy in a place where everything is about God's will. Not going to be happy there. You know, this is the this is kind of the point of of everything we try to do as a church. You know, and and prayer and mass and and etc. Is it's it's about what we're doing for God. You know, it's about about praising Him first, about putting Him first, and then the the goal of trying to put him first in every day of our lives, because for eternity, that's what it is. You know, for, I mean, what do you think you're going to do in eternity? You're not going to do any, any of the stuff we're doing now. Um, we're not going to go to work or, you know, worry about our, <laughs> worry about our bank accounts or worry about our physical security or none of that. You know, so, so many of the things that we do and pursue in this life when we look, when we look through, through into eternity, they're, they're meaningless, you know, in eternity. Right now they have meaning, and they're not bad things, you know. I mean, one should work. One should, you know, try to, you know, make a good life for themselves and for, for their loved ones. That, these are all noble pursuits. But if the goal is merely making a good life for oneself and not in anticipation for eternity, a person will be ill-prepared for what's to come. Um, and so here we have those, those ghosts or those souls up in heaven, and they're miserable. They're absolutely miserable. And, and now Ike, <laughs> you know, is trying to take part of heaven back to hell with him. And he's told it won't fit. There's no room for it there, which I think that'll be explained moving forward. I won't spoil it. But um, so, so anyway, that, this, is, this is sort of the, the imagery or what the imagery is trying to connect to, you know, within, within Christian tradition. All right, chapter 7. Although I watched the misfortunes of the ghost and the bowler with some complacency, I found when we were left alone that I could not bear the presence of the water giant. It did not appear to take any notice of me. 
but I became self-conscious. And I rather think there was some assumed nonchalance in my movements as I walked away over the flat rocks downstream again. I was beginning to be tired, looking at the silver fish which darted over the riverbed. I wished greatly to me also that water were permeable. I should have liked, I should have liked a dip. Thinking of going back, said a voice close at hand. I turned and saw a tall ghost standing with its back against a tree, chewing a ghostly chair root. It was that of a lean, hard-bitten man with gray hair and, and a gruff but not uneducated voice, the kind of man I have always instinctively felt to be reliable. I don't know, I said, are you? Yes, it replied. I guess I've seen about all there is to see. You don't think of stain. That's all propaganda. Of course, there never was any question of our stain. You can't eat the fruit and you can't drink the water and it takes you all your time to walk on the grass. A human being couldn't live here. All that idea of stain is only an advertisement stunt. Then why did you come? Well, I don't know, just have a look around. I'm the sort of chap who likes to see things for himself. Wherever I've been, I've always had a look at anything that was being cracked up. When I was out east, I went to see Peking. When, what was Peking like? Nothing to it, just one darn wall inside another, just a trap for tourists. I've been pretty well everywhere, Niagara Falls, the Pyramids, Salt Lake City, the Taj Mahal. <laughs> Salt Lake City, it's kind of a joke. What was it like? Not worth looking at. They're all advertisement stunts, all run by the same people. There's a combine, you know, a world combine that just takes an atlas and decides where they'll have a site. Doesn't matter what they choose, anything will do as long as the publicity is properly managed. And you lived er, uh, down there in the town for some time? In what they call hell? Yes, it's a flop too. They lead you to expect red fire and devils and all sorts of interesting people sizzling on grids, Henry VIII and all that. But when you get there, it's just like any other town. I prefer it up here, said I. Well, I don't see what the talk is about, said the hard-bitten ghost. It's as good as any other park to look at and darned uncomfortable. There seems to be some idea that if one stays here, one would get, well, solid or grow acclimatized. I know all about that, said the ghost. Same old lie. People have been telling me that sort of thing all my life. They told me in the nursery that if I were good, I'd be happy. And then they told me at school that Latin would get easier as I went on. After I'd been married a month, some fool was telling me that there were always difficulties at first, but with tact and patience, I'd soon settle down and like it. And all through two wars, what didn't they say about the good, old, the good time coming if only I'd be a brave boy and go on being shot at? Of course, they'll play the old game here if anyone's fool enough to listen. But who are they? This might be run by someone different. Entirely new management, eh? Don't you believe it. It's never a new management. You'll always find the same old ring. I know all about it, dear. Kind mummy coming up to your bedroom and getting all she wants to know out of you, but you always found she and father were the same firm, really. Didn't we find that both sides in all the wars were run by the same armament firms? Or the same firm which is behind the Jews and the Vatican and the dictators and the democracies and all the rest of it? All this stuff up here is run by the same people as the town. They're just laughing at us. I thought they were at war. Well, of course you did. That's the official version. But who's ever seen any signs of it? Oh, I know that's how they talk, but if there's a real war, why don't they do anything? 
Don't you see that if the official version were true, these chaps here would attack and sweep the town out of existence? They've got the strength. If they wanted to rescue us, they could do it. But obviously, the last thing they want to is to end their so-called war. The whole game de depends on keeping it going. This account of the matter struck me as uncomfortably plausible. I said nothing. Anyway, said the ghost, who wants to be rescued? What the hell would there be, there be to do here? Or there, said I. Quite, said the ghost. They've got you either way. What would you like to do if you had your choice, I asked. There you go, said the ghost with a certain triumph, asking me to make a plan. It's up to the management to find something that doesn't bore us, isn't it? It's their job. Why should we do it for them? That's just where all the parsons and moralists have got the thing upside down. They keep on asking us to alter ourselves. But if the people who run the show are so clever and so powerful, why don't they find someone to suit their public? Something to suit their public. All this poppycock about growing harder so the grass doesn't hurt our feet now? There's an example. What would you say if you went to a hotel where the eggs were all bad and then you complained to the boss? Instead of apologizing and changing his dairyman, he just told you that if you tried, you'd get to like bad eggs in time. Well, I'll be getting along, said the ghost after a short silence. You coming my way? There doesn't seem to be much point in going anywhere on your showing, I replied. A great depression had come over me. And at least it's not raining here. Not at the moment, said the hard-bitten ghost. But I never saw one of these bright mornings that didn't turn to rain later on. And by gum, when it does rain here? Ah, you hadn't thought of that. It hadn't occurred to you that with the sort of water they have here, every raindrop will make a hole in you like a machine gun bullet. That's the little joke, you see. First of all, tantalize you with ground you can't walk on and water you can't drink and then drill you full of holes. But they won't catch me that way. A few minutes later, he moved off. All right. So have you ever met anybody like this? Yeah? I've met plenty of people like this. I don't need that religion stuff. It's just the same old scam, just like every other scam. Everything's a scam. The government's a scam. Religion's a scam. Economics are a scam. War's a scam. You know, somebody who's on one hand got every, everything figured out but won't do a damn thing to change his life, right? Complains about management, complains about government, complains about God. Then you say, well, why don't you do something? Well, it's my job to do it. Why don't they do it? <laughs> when do those people change, you know? So, um, okay, one of the things we were trying to analyze, you know, last week uh, when these individuals came up is, um, you know, why would this guy not want to stay, ultimately? And we know what he said, but, you know, to try to go deeper into sort of the, the personality of it, what is keeping him from perhaps staying I mean, right now he is, you know, he doesn't like anything, right? What does he lack? It might conflict with the story he's telling in his head, but the reality there simply doesn't fit with his... Yeah, so he's got his story, right? He's got a story about all of reality everywhere. He knows everything, and if he stayed and gave it a chance, that would that'd be a, a crush. Yeah, it'd crush his entire worldview. To be wrong. Yeah. Oh, to be wrong. One of the great things is, is to be wrong. 
I mean, we should really rejoice when we find out we're wrong. You know, if you think about, well, I don't like to be wrong. Well, I don't necessarily like to be wrong, but when I find out that I was wrong, there's goodness in that because now I know greater truth than I knew before. You know, and so when we stay narrow in, in our, little, our little bubble of truth and we don't, we don't allow anything else to enter into that, to challenge us, yeah, that, in some ways that's a very comfortable place and a lot of people can stay there. But it doesn't really make us open to anything new or to anybody else or to any other ideas uh, to be challenged in any way. It, in some ways, if you look at it from the outside, it seems to me to, to be a fairly dull uh, existence, you know, to, to just never allow oneself to entertain new ideas or new thoughts. Um, would this guy be, now there's, there's two things, right? So there's, if he stayed, he would have to believe that what they're telling him, the propaganda, is true. That if he stayed, he'd, he'd learn how to walk on the grass, that that he would grow strong enough uh, to enjoy it. So the first thing is, again, he, he, has to, he would have to accept somebody else's authority, well, which ends up being the, the difficulty is, I mean, how many, how many people, just even as, you know, even as Christians or Catholics, how hard that is to accept somebody else's authority? You know, even my authority, you know, in the church. And then you think, well, what about bishops? The, so many of them are knuckleheads, and the popes. There's been some pretty bad popes, you know. But then when you start to break it down, you find that, well, wait a second. In every walk of life, there's authority. You know, it's very rare that anybody is outside of some sort of authority structure, right? I mean, if you work a job, you usually have an authority. There's someone who's above you. Um, and then there's, you know, there's a government. There's, there's laws. There's... Um, you know, there's the, these sort of public laws that have authority over us, but then there's even natural laws that have authority over us. You know, we can't, we simply, our, our freedom is always a situated freedom. It's always a limited freedom. We can't do everything we want to do. And then of course, there's a desire to, I think there's a natural desire to not want to put ourselves under authority, but ultimately we always are under authority, whether we like it or not. And so when it comes to ultimate reality, um, this can be difficult. Um, I can understand, I totally can understand why somebody would say, well, yeah, I go to St. Joseph's, but, you know, I don't really understand, you know, I don't like that priest, <laughs> you know, or I don't like how he uses authority or whatever. I get it. I totally understand that because I feel the same way about other things in my life. But at the same point, or at the same time, you know, there's kind of, it would seem to me there's sort of a limit to that, you know. There's there's a limit to which a person might say, well, I don't have to like everything. You know, do I really have to like everything in life? Do I have to agree with everything in life? Do, you know, can I be respectful of, I mean, teenagers go through this, right? They don't have to like the rules in the house. They don't have to even like their parents. But for them to exist in a, in a house that's somewhat peaceable, it would be a good start to to honor the authority that their parents have. It, it, it's right relationship. Even in God, there is, we understand the Trinity to have right relationship. Jesus always talks about doing the will of his heavenly Father. You know, that, that in the Godhead itself, there is subordination. There's still equality because all three persons are divine, but there's subordination. 
So the Father's will, or the Son, is subject to the Father's will. That's what we learn from Scripture. It's clear. It's right there. But the subordination doesn't mean, mean inequality. So, you know, within the church, using that as an example, or the family, we can do that too. The mother or father is not um, of greater dignity than the child. The priest is not of greater dignity than the parishioner. They're, they're completely equal in, in dignity as far as, you know, their creation. Every single person is, and we believe this, of course, as Americans, it's, it's embedded in our, our, the foundation of our beliefs, but we didn't create those ideas. We believe those ideas to be true because they come from God, actually, is where we claim they came from, that we're all created equal. So, so even within an authority structure, I mean, the boss doesn't have greater dignity or value than, than the employee, right? They're of equal value, they're of equal dignity. But still, there's a necessity for right order, right, for, for things to run properly, that there be authority. That authority be, you know, when it's, when it's used properly and, and with integrity, that it be followed. So this guy can't, can't understand that. I mean, basically, we're back to the, we're kind of back to the same thing. He's his own authority. He knows everything. He knows everything about. I mean, he can't even walk on the grass, but he knows everything about it. You know, he. he I mean, he's only been there for a short period of time, a few hours maybe, but he's got it all figured out. It's just the same old. There's a pessimism there, or a cynicism. Maybe that's better. A cynicism. You know that that nothing could ever be what it's cracked up to be. You know. Um, Practicing religion could never be what it's cracked up to be. Heaven could never be what it's cracked up to be. God can never, you know, a person just desires to stay in that sort of depressed, it's really kind of a depressed state. Yes? I think he lacks adaptability. Lacks adaptability. Yeah, and what, what is it that a person would need to be adaptable, especially in this context? Yeah, he has to give in. He has to give in. He has to surrender. He has to submit. Sure. Well, yeah, and I mean, we could go on and on about, you know, why, why a person, and it's a, it's a good point. It's a very good point. What makes a person? I, I think as a corollary to that, um, because clearly the, the reason a, a, a person gets to that point of such cynicism has a lot to do with their environment and their life experiences, obviously, as well as whatever parenting they received. But as a corollary, at what point did they become responsible for it? See, that's what I think, to your point, even becomes more interesting, because then when it comes to, like we can, I can blame my, my parents for all kinds of stuff and, and continue to do so every time I have a bad day, but you know, at what point is it my job to fix my life, you know? At, at what point do, am I supposed to have sort of, um, you know, the, the, the freedom or the maturity to be able to break free from that? Because, because you're right, you're absolutely right. A person can, you know, a, every, every single person is formed by, by their surroundings and by their influences in life. What were you gonna say? Yeah, that's a great point. At what point, what does it take for a person to become able? So even this guy. Right, yeah. So, um, you know, you think of people who perhaps have suffered, uh, suffered abuse, especially as children, right? 
And um, that kind of, those kind of traumatic experiences have a profound effect on people. And from, you know, from a moral theology perspective, I would say that a lot of their behaviors are not really their responsibility as they're continuing to act out of that trauma or any, any other kind of trauma a person experiences. Um, and what would it take for a person to get to the point where um, they're able to be more free? You know, and that's the goal of every kind of, you know, whether it's addiction, you know, and somebody working through uh, recovery in that way or somebody working through recovery with, the, with psychological and emotional issues which I have found everybody has. Every, there's not a single one of you that is me. I shouldn't just say you. There's not a single one of us who doesn't have stuff, you know, that, um, and, and ideally, as we, as we grow, we want to become more and more free and more and more responsible. Um, but that would also relate to their guilt then, right? At the same time, so let's say this guy isn't responsible for it. He still cannot accept the gift because it's a gift. God is not going to force anybody into heaven. Salvation is a gift. And this guy can't, even if, and we don't know, but, you know, even if he's not fully responsible, which I'm sure he's not fully responsible for all of this stuff, there still has to be an acceptance of Christ. They, yeah, so how does God work around that? I, I don't know. I mean, we're going to see some more ideas because that's really, I mean, when you really look at, uh, as you read the entire book um, and your observations, I, I, I find to be very much in line with what, which, what I kind of think about as I read this stuff. Um, as, as we move forward, the interactions are exactly about that. You know, the chances that people are given and the lengths to which God goes to to help them but at the same time there's there's only so much time right there's only so many chances you know how many so like with this this knucklehead like how many more chances is it going to take he's been in hell he prefers it you know he's been up here and he's up up in heaven he's seen this beautiful beautiful uh land and he but you know and he's told well if you if you stay it's going to be hard work you're going to have to suffer a little but the payoff is worth it. There's no payoff in hell, but he would still rather be there. He'd still rather be in hell. Okay, so let's move on to chapter 8. Oh, yeah, this, okay, so we got another interaction. This is good. I sat still on a stone by the river's side, feeling as miserable as I ever felt in my life. That's the effect we can have on each other. <laughs> Hitherto it had not occurred to me to doubt the intentions of the solid people, nor to question the essential goodness of their country, even if it were a country which I could not long inhabit. I had indeed once it had indeed once crossed my mind that if these solid people were as benevolent as I had heard one or two of them claim to be, they might have done something to help the inhabitants of the town, something more than meeting them on the plain. Now a terrible explanation came into my mind. How if this whole trip were allowed the ghosts merely to mock them? Horrible myths and doctrines stirred in my memory. I thought of how the gods had punished Tantalus. I thought of the place of the book of Revelation where it says that if the smoke of hell goes up forever in the sight of the blessed spirits, 
I remember how poor Cowper, dreaming that he was not after all doomed to perdition, at once knew the dream to be false and said, these are the sharpest arrows in his quiver. And what the hard-bitten ghost had said about the rain was clearly true. Even a shower of dewdrops from a branch might tear me in pieces. Had I not thought of this before, and I had not thought of this before, and how easily I might have ventured into the spray of the waterfall. The sense of danger, which I had never been entirely, had never been entirely absent since I left the bus, awoke with a sharp urgency. So, but see, I think this is really good, because it is dangerous. And it feels dangerous when, when you look at what God might do to change us. Because we get so, people can get so settled into their status quo and think, well, I'm doing all right. I'm a pretty good guy and I'm going to church and isn't that enough? Father John, aren't you ever happy with me? Well, unfortunately, you don't have to please me because that would be easy. But I know that we all have to please God and he's less, you know, he's a little bit hard. He wants more. It's not that he isn't pleased, but he wants more. He want, he's told us. He wants perfection. He wants holiness. That's what he's after. And the only way to get there is to continue to work, to never say, I mean, there's going to be times in our spiritual life where we kind of coast, but, but ultimately to continue to look at the self, you know, to continue to look at the psychology, the emotions, the, uh, the spirituality, to continue to look and say, what else do I need to do to become a better person? How can I grow? And there's a good chance that, that if we sat down, we could figure out, between you and I, we could figure out ways for both of us to grow pretty quickly, pretty quickly. Okay, so it's dangerous. I gazed around the trees, the flowers, and the talking cataract. They had begun to look unbearably sinister. Bright insects darted to and fro. If one of those were to fly into my face, would it not go right through me? If it settled on my head, would it crush me to the earth? Terror whispered, this is no place for you. I remembered also the lions. With no very clear plan in my mind, I rose and began walking away from the river in that direction where the trees grew closest together. I had not fully made up my mind to go back to the bus, but I wanted to avoid open places. If only I could find a trace of evidence that it was really possible for a ghost to stay, that the choice was not only a cruel comedy, I would not go back. In the meantime, I went on gingerly and keeping a sharp lookout in about half an hour, I came to a little clearing with some bushes in the center. As I stopped, wondering if I dared cross it, I realized that I was not alone. A ghost hobbled across the clearing as quickly as it could on that uneasy soil, looking over its shoulder as if it were pursued. I saw that it had been a woman, a well-dressed woman, I thought, but its shadows of finery looked ghastly in the morning light. It was making for the bushes. It could not really get in among them. The twigs and the leaves were too hard, but it pressed as close up against them as it could. It seemed to believe it was hiding. A moment later, I heard the sound of feet, and one of the bright people came in sight. One always noticed that sound there, for we ghosts made no noise when we walked. Go away, squealed the ghost. Go away. Can't you see I want to be alone? But you need help, said the solid one. If you had the least trace of decent feeling left, said the ghost, you keep away. I don't want help. I want to be left alone. Do go away. 
You know I can't walk fast enough on these horrible spikes to get away from you. It's abominable of you taking advantage. Oh, that. That'll soon come right. But you're going in the wrong direction. It's back there to the mountains you need to go. You can lean on me all the way. I can't absolutely carry you, but you need have almost no weight on your feet, and it will hurt less at every step. I'm not afraid of being hurt. You know that. Then what is the matter? Can't you understand anything? Do you really suppose I'm going out there among all those people like this? But why not? I'd have never come at all if I'd known you were all going to be dressed like that. Friend, you see I'm not dressed at all. I didn't mean that. Do go away. But can't you even tell me? If you can't understand, there'd be no good trying to explain it. How can I go out like this among a lot of people with real solid bodies? It's far worse than going out with nothing on would have been on earth. Have everyone staring through me. Oh, I see. But we were all a bit ghostly when we first arrived, you know. That'll wear off. Just come out and try. But they'll see me. What does it matter if they do? I'd rather die. But you've died already. There's no good trying to go back to that. The ghost made a sound something like a sob and a snarl. I wish I'd never been born, it said. What are we born for? For infinite happiness, said the spirit. You can step out into it at any moment. But I tell you, they'll see me. An hour hence and you will not care. A day hence and you will laugh at it. Don't you remember on earth there were things too hot to touch with your finger, but you could drink them all right? Shame is like that. If you will accept it, you will drink the cup to the bottom. You will find it very nourishing, but try to do anything else with it, and it scalds. You really mean, said the ghost, and then it paused. My suspense was strained up to the height. I felt that my own destiny hung on her reply. I could have fallen at her feet and begged her to yield. Yes, said the spirit, come and try. Almost, I thought the ghost had obeyed. Certainly it had moved. But suddenly it cried out, no, I can't. I tell you, I can't. For a moment while you were talking, I almost thought, but when it comes to the point, you've got no right to ask me to do a thing like that. It's disgusting. I should never forgive myself if I did. Never, never, and it's not fair. They ought to have warned us. I'd have never come. And now, please go away. Friend, said the spirit, could you only for a moment fix your mind on something not yourself? I've already given you my answer, said the ghost, coldly but still tearful. Then only one expedient remains, said the spirit. And to my great surprise, he set a horn to his lips and blew. I put my hands over my ears. The earth seemed to shake. The whole wood trembled and dindled at the sound. I suppose there must have been a pause after that, though there seemed to be none, before I heard the thudding of hoofs, far off at first, but already nearer before I had well identified it, and soon so near that I began to look about for some place of safety. Before I had found one, the danger was all about us. A herd of unicorns came thundering through the glades, 27 hands high, the smallest of them, and white as swans, but for the red gleam in eyes and nostrils and the flashing indigo of their horns. I can still remember the squelching noise of the soft, wet turf under their hoofs, the breaking of the undergrowth, the snorting and the whinnyings, how their hind legs went up and their horned heads down in mimic battle. 
Even then I wondered for what real battle it might be, the rehearsal. I heard the ghost scream, and I think it made a bolt away from the bushes, perhaps toward the spirit, but I don't know. For my own nerve failed, and I fled, not heeding for the moment the horrible going underfoot, and not once daring to pause. So I never saw the end of that interview. Okay, so, so here's a woman. Um, I guess some of it's given away by the, the, the literacy there, or the, the literal. But um, what do we observe about this person, this ghost, this soul? What is she fixated on? How she looks? Yeah, I think that's more, that's even more, I mean, you're right, she's focused on how she looks, but only insofar as it's referenced toward how people would see it, right? Which is kind of what you mean by she's focused on what she, she looks like. She's, she's afraid of being seen by other people in this ghastly way. She's embarrassed of herself. She's ashamed of herself, okay? Um, which is interesting, what leads to that? What leads to that? What does she lack? Self-confidence, self-esteem. Hmm. It seems to me that she was somebody, quote unquote, in life. Maybe she was somebody important or something? Socialite. She was a Kardashian. (laughs) She's not the socialite here. Part of, what she, part of what she lacks also is self-knowledge because here she is up in this, on the plane where all these, she would say, well, all these beautiful people are and I look like this. Well, part of, part of the problem is that she never knew that on earth she looked the same way. That, that now her shadowy self is really just a, an explicit reference to the shallowness that she probably was in her earthly life. And now it's exposed for what it really is, right? And so she thinks, well, if I could just fix myself up, <laughs> well, that's a problem. You look horrid. You're, you're a flipping ghost. You were just in hell, you know. Of course you don't look good, you know. How, how do you expect to look good where you've been and, and why you've been there? Um, and so, so yes, yeah, she's so ashamed of, what she is, and that's why he references shame. Because on, on the face of it, right, there's this, I don't want to be seen as I am. I'm ashamed of how I look. But the deeper shame is the reason she looks that way. The, the thing right? Oh, okay. Yeah, the fear of this is how I'm going to look forever. Yes, she will. So maybe just that we focus too much on our, our physical looks and our body and right. too much importance on that as opposed to spiritual life. Too much of a focus on outward appearance and, and beauty. I spend most of my time doing that. <laughs> <laughs> No, I can say that's one thing. I have one problem I don't have. <laughs> there are others, not this, not that. Um, 
I mean, you, how fashionable can you be with these shirts? <laughs> I only got so many options. Let's see, black or black? Yeah. They actually make these in other colors. You can get white and blue and, you know, all those. Yeah, they're a little too effeminate for me. Just being honest. Yeah. Well, and white gets dirty. You can't wear it three days in a row without people knowing. <laughs> Just hang it up outside, put a little Febreze on it. You're good to go. My wife doesn't complain. So, <laughs> um, so what, do you, what do you think that his real reason for being in hell is? Is it because of self-absorption? What do I think her reason for, for having been in hell well, I, th I think that, uh, um, yeah, how she got there in the first place probably had to do with the shallowness, you know, and her focus on the exterior and worldliness, just in general, worldly, which takes on how she looks in front of people. And like, like, like you said, uh, maybe she was a socialite or something. That makes perfect sense that a person who's, not that being a socialite is necessarily bad, but, but a person who's only caught up in that and, and isn't real. I mean, they're just, they're, they're kind of fake, you know. I just thought that came to mind is the uh, line from, I guess, your little expectations. Okay. The kids in during the orphanage and the kids coming up to take more. Right. Is what her, her thing is that she actually puts this away so they leave her alone. Not necessarily more Right, right. Yeah, and I, well, and I think what's built up in her now is the shame of, of knowing what she was and, and to, to move further, um, she has to give that up. She has to give up the, the shame and she's still, trying to, she's still trying to go back and preserve her sort of existence as she was. Now, what about, because somebody, well, I brought it up, but somebody... Somebody else may have mentioned, oh, yeah, we're talking about sort of like what, how much responsibility does a person have? How much is God going to help? So in this, in this sort of little parable, how much was, it seemed like a man talking to her, but that, it certainly seemed like a man talking, but that's because I was reading. Um, <laughs> but the, the bright person that was talking to her, what kind of help was, was he willing to give? gone. Like with the temptation, you can't get past it. Yeah. And he couldn't, couldn't accept that. He looked at it. So if we were to, to look at it, you know, God has sent this person who clearly she knows. Um, and this person has identified for her what the problem is. Look, all you got to do is give it up. And then he says, you just have to start walking. Pretty soon you're going to forget about everything. And you can lean on me. You can lean on me the whole way. And I'll, you know, it'll, it'll hardly hurt, you know. I'll, I'll get you there. I mean, but he can't do, what was the line? Uh, I, can't I can't carry you. But, you know, I can do everything but that. Um, which, which I think goes back to sort of the traditional understanding of, of how God is operating with us. That, that God is going to give us all the, you know, God, what did you do for me? Well, you know, I died on the cross. I I sent the Spirit, I gave you the sacraments, I gave you the church, I gave you 
a conscience. I gave you, you know, I gave you quite a few things to help, um, but I can't do it for you because as soon as he, as soon as he makes us be saved, we lose our freedom. And he's not going to do that because as soon as, as soon as we don't have our freedom, we don't have the ability to love, right? If, if, um, I mean, I've certainly seen a number of relationships, marriages, where one person is, is very coercive of the other. Um, and that the, the manipulation that takes place within the relationship is clearly aimed at, you know, the person who's manipulating, of course, is, is usually the most wounded of the two. But the, the manipulation of the other to get what they want is so coercive that it really limits the freedom. So even if they're getting what they want, from their husband by punishing them with, you know, whatever it is, it's not really a freely given by the husband, if that makes sense, you know, or vice versa. If, if there's so much uh, pressure being placed on the other person to do what they want, um, then even if they get their way, they're, they're not really winning, you know, because it's not freely given. It's not a healthy, it's not a healthy dynamic in a relationship, any kind of manipulation like that. So God isn't going to do that. I mean, we can see that in human relationships. God's not going to do that in, in his relationship with us. He needs us to be free, but he's going to give us every help he can without taking away the freedom. All right, let's see. Maybe so, uh, you know, uh, speculation here, this herd of unicorns. I, I suspect um, he was trying to scare the heck out of her to get her focused on something other than herself. Um, but we don't know. Oh, I found it, the quote, the thy will be done quote. It's in the next chapter. I was wrong. Oh, it's a long chapter. Holy, yeah. Holy moly. Wow. That's 20 pages of chapter. All right, you want to do it? Want me to do it, or do you want to quit for the night? No votes. <laughs> Should we save it? Let's save it for next week. Let's save nine for next week. So, um, so as, you're, as you're reading, and those of you at home listening, um, read ahead at least, do, do nine and ten, okay? And uh, that'll get us to page 95. So um, just because this one's so long, though, I don't, I don't want to venture into it without having a good amount of time, um, especially because it's kind of pivotal where he meets uh, Lewis, basically one of Lewis's main influences, he meets him in, in heaven. Um, so so as, you're, as you're reading, continue to look at, because I, th I think it, so it's one thing to focus on these people and how messed up they are, <laughs> you know, but also I think for yourself, and not that you need to enunciate it, of course, in class, but to see if there are elements of, of you in, in some of these other people, you know, maybe there's part of me in this other person that I need to look at. Maybe you're not, you know, cause they're caricatures, right? So they're, they're blown up into these, these big caricatures, but, but maybe there's, there's something about you spiritually in, in, in one of these people. And, and again, the whole idea of reading this is not just for curiosity, but hopefully for, for some kind of growth as well. So. Even if you find yourself in hell, 
there's still hope for you. Well, I, so the question is, uh, is Lewis saying that if you find yourself in hell, there's still hope for you? Um, remember, he's not, that's not what he's saying. Um, I don't think, I wouldn't take that from, from the book. I think what he would say is, and he said it in the first chapter, basically, um, for those who, who ended up staying in, in this new place, then the gray town was purgatory. And for those who go back, it's hell. So I, th I think if there's anything that he's kind of making a case for, remember Protestants don't really believe in purgatory. So the fact that a Protestant is even making room for the notion of purgatory is, is uh, although he's an Anglican, so he's pretty close, but still, just the very nature of Protestantism, you know, rejects purgatory um, completely. That's why Luther took those important books out of the Bible. Um, so, so, number one, he's kind of conflating or combining together the gray town into this sort of purgative state. And if you choose to stay in that state, you're basically choosing to stay in hell. But, but we always have to remember that he's not making literal claims about doctrine, right? But if we were to understand the analogy of what he's saying, that's, that's, what, he's, that's what he's saying. So there's an opportunity. So th those who, who remain damned are the ones who maybe they, because remember in the, you were here last week, right? Okay, so remember they were talking about, does everybody make it to the bus stop? And they said, no, not everybody even gets there. They, they, go, they go further and further. Remember they found Napoleon. Yeah, and they have no chance. Right, because they, they're so alienated and isolated. They're so wrapped up in themselves that they can't, get close to even the opportunity. So in that sense, then, they've always been in hell, um, which is their self-imposed isolation, which is what they desire most of all. Okay. Hold his arm. All right. Turn this guy off.